From scamming working class borrowers to extorting taxpayers for subsidies and so much more, we discuss the criminal lengths that capitalists in the United States will go to to make a profit. We'll also discuss the death of Colin Powell and his legacy, right-wing Democrats aiming to block passage of the social spending budget, and recent instances of racist police abuse as the trial of the killers of Ahmed Arbery opens. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's October 19th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And sign up for our October patrons-only seminar with Brian, which will be held next Tuesday, October 26th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific time. We'll take questions for him beforehand and live as we go. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ibarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, we've got a number of topics today, but I know we want to start with really big news. Just from yesterday, Colin Powell died from COVID-19. Indeed, he was suffering from a kind of blood cancer that made his immune system vulnerable. So although he had been vaccinated for COVID-19, he succumbed to COVID-19. Colin Powell, of course, is being revered in the U.S. mainstream media. He was the first African-American who was the Secretary of Defense. He was also the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was a venerable politician in uniform inside the United States. And unfortunately, as a consequence of the mainstream media coverage, the one sort of mark on Colin Powell's record is when he appeared in early February 2003 before the UN General Assembly, and because he wasn't Donald Rumsfeld, because he wasn't Dick Cheney, he wasn't George W. Bush, because he was considered not an extremist neocon politician, even though a politician normally in uniform, he had a certain credibility. So he came to the General Assembly and he said, look, we have the goods, we have the evidence. Iraq is an imminent danger to its neighbors. It's an imminent danger to global peace. We can prove that it has weapons of mass destruction. I'm going to present to you a whole dossier explaining why Iraq indeed has weapons of mass destruction. And so he became the salesman for the looming war. That was February 3rd, I believe, 2003, two weeks before the Answer Coalition, and I'm the national director of the Answer Coalition, organized a protest on the mall in Washington, D.C. on January 18, 2003, under the slogan, under the banner, 
stop the war before it starts, no war against Iraq. And we had 500,000 people come to that demonstration. It was the biggest, largest anti-war protest in Washington, D.C. since the end of the Vietnam War. And this was a mass mobilization before a war started. Pretty unprecedented, trying to stop a war before it even started. And so the U.S. government, the Bush administration was reeling because people all around the country did not believe them. And people all around the world did not believe the U.S. assertions that Saddam Hussein was a threat, that he had weapons of mass destruction. People around the world, and especially those in government, knew that Iraq had been under sanction since August 1990, right after Iraq invaded Kuwait and that those sanctions were crippling, and that Iraq had been bombed for 42 days in 1991 between January and the end of February, and that the U.S. dropped millions of tons of explosive devices on Iraq, and that the sanctions that were imposed on Iraq after that completely hobbled the country. The U.N.'s own statistics, the U.N., which was imposing the sanctions under U.S. pressure and monitoring the sanctions. The U.S. own statistics said that about 8,000 Iraqis were dying per month from economic sanctions and that 5,000 of them were children under the age of five. And so Iraq was hobbled. It was surrounded. It was weakened. It wasn't going to war against anybody. And nobody believed Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and Condoleezza Rice. So they sent Colin Powell to the UN to make the case. And so the media coverage today says this was the one really sort of bad mark on Colin Powell's record because he didn't tell the truth. He was wrong in his presentation. Well, of course, if one reviews the legacy of Colin Powell, there are many, many other instances of Colin Powell like so many other members of the U.S. High Command, committing war crimes and crimes against humanity and crimes against peace. But anyway, let's start with this presentation by Colin Powell attempting to convince the world that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. By the way, the U.N. never gave authorization for the war. The Security Council would never buy into it. So in many ways, while it was at the U.N., Colin Powell's selling point was really with a domestic audience in mind. It was really to convince the American people who didn't trust Bush or Cheney, but the Bush administration thought, well, they'll trust Colin Powell. He's not one of us. He's something different. He has bipartisan support. Anyway, I want to start by playing an audio clip of part of Colin Powell's speech that day at the UN. My second purpose today is to provide you with additional information to share with you what the United States knows about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, as well as Iraq's involvement in terrorism, which is also the subject of Resolution 1441 and other earlier resolutions. I might add at this point that we are providing all relevant information we can to the inspection teams for them to do their work. The material I will present to you comes from a variety of sources. Some are U.S. sources and Some are those of other countries. Some of the sources are technical, such as intercepted telephone conversations and photos taken by satellites. Other sources are people who have risked their lives to let the world know what Saddam Hussein is really up to. I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. What you will see 
is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts in Iraqi's behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. Colin Powell, when he was obviously castigated later when no weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq, he said he was misled by U.S. intelligence. He was misled by the CIA. He considered it a bad moment for his career, his otherwise stellar career. Colin Powell knew exactly what was going on. Anybody who was paying attention to Iraq, and of course, Colin Powell as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the 1990 war, that when he oversaw the war, they knew how weak Iraq was. They knew exactly how weak it was, and they knew that Iraq presented no threat whatsoever. I want to read a little bit from a book that I helped do research and support for, and then later wrote the introduction for. It's called The Fire This Time, U.S. War Crimes in the Gulf by Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General. Pounded by the latest in high-tech killing machines, it is no surprise that when the ground war began, the surviving Iraqi troops had neither the capacity nor the will to fight. By February 24th, there were probably not 150,000 Iraqi troops left alive in Kuwait in the border area. That's after 42 days of bombing them while they're in the desert without protection. Tens of thousands had deserted. The soldiers who did remain with their units were debilitated by the constant bombardment, the scarcity of food and water, and the destruction of their armor, artillery, ordnance, and communications. They were incapable of defending themselves, and when attacked, they retreated in disorganized flight. When asked his assessment of the number of Iraqi soldiers and civilians killed, General Colin Powell answered, quote, It's really not a number I'm terribly interested in. Again, the Defense Intelligence Agency and many other sources inside the U.S. government thought there were about 100,000 Iraqis who had been killed in this 42-day war. But Colin Powell says glibly, that's not a number I'm terribly interested in. Of course, even that assertion breaches the Geneva Convention, which insists that the casualties and the war dead must be taken into account and that everything must be done to prevent civilian casualties. But of course, the bulk of the war, the bulk of the bombing, overseen by Colin Powell in 1991, was not against the Iraqi troops in the desert. They were against Baghdad and Basra and Mosul, against the cities. They destroyed the sanitation system on purpose. They said so, and we have their documents. They destroyed the water system. They destroyed the electrical grid. They made it impossible for the Iraqis to live. And then at the end of that conflict, at the end, they imposed economic sanctions so Iraq could never recover. And then 13 years later, Colin Powell goes before the UN, the Bush administration, desperate to convince the American people that Iraq constituted a real and imminent danger, and thus the war would be justified. And, you know, Esther, when we think back about it, the Lancet Medical Journal by 2010 
had thought, had reckoned that there was maybe a million Iraqis who had died who would not have otherwise died if the war had not taken place. A million. They didn't all die from bullets and bombs and missiles. They died from starvation and disease, etc. But when you think you've killed a million people out of a country of 28 million, and it's premised on a lie, and Colin Powell knew he was lying because he knew he was lying, he absolutely could not have believed that Iraq constituted some sort of threat. And then, you know, you think about Colin Powell, he's being revered. Then you think about the guys above Colin Powell, like George W. Bush. Anyway, we've been talking about it, but I think it's important for us to mention because how we remember even recent history is so important in terms of forming current consciousness. And so many of the documentaries that have been done about that period, they've kind of painted Colin Powell to be like a fool for being put up to this. He knew there are some evidence, there's some documentation that he wasn't really sure about this information being put into his hand to go and present toward the United Nations. And, you know, now George W. Bush is still giving speeches, being paid more than $130,000 for speeches, selling his paintings of war amputees. It's disgusting. And to see these war criminals, Rumsfeld, a general you mentioned, I think last week, and now Colin Powell, being kind of sanitized after death, even if they're mildly criticized, is just one reason why we have to constantly like remind people of the truth and not this sanitized version that they even want to like teach our children in school now. The U.S. military committed war crimes against Iraq during the First and Second Gulf War. Colin Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He knew that at least tens of thousands, probably 100,000 Iraqis died in the first war. He said he didn't care about that number. Again, that war was also completely avoidable because Saddam Hussein, and we're going to do another show about this, Saddam Hussein fully expected when he intervened in Kuwait on August 2nd, sent Iraqi soldiers, that there was going to be an Arab League negotiated settlement so that Iraqi grievances against the Kuwaiti royal family would get resolved, then Iraq would pull out, you know, there'd be a new sort of constellation, a new arrangement. But the U.S. and the Bush administration, including all of the players, including those in the Pentagon, like Colin Powell at the time, they deliberately torpedoed those negotiations by directly intervening and pressuring Egypt and Saudi Arabia to condemn Iraq and to force Saudi Arabia to accept U.S. troops on the false premise that Iraq was planning to invade Saudi Arabia. That was the reason the U.S. forces were deployed to Saudi Arabia. But the real reason for the deployment was they were getting ready for a war against Iraq. And that war wasn't because of Kuwait. Kuwait was a trigger. It was a pretext. But the U.S. had a larger plan. We'll talk about that at another time. I do want to mention, though, that Colin Powell was in Vietnam. And in Vietnam, he was in the unit that was responsible for the Malay massacre. That was in 1968. The initial reports from the unit was that they killed 128 Viet Cong soldiers. Viet Cong was the slang for the National Liberation Front fighters and 22 civilians. Well, the reality is that the U.S., that unit went into Malay and they slaughtered more than 500 children, babies, women, old men. All of them were civilians. They just slaughtered them. They 
destroyed them. They killed them in the most brutal ways. And the killing went on for more than a day. It was a complete 100% genocidal slaughter. Now, Colin Powell was not there, but he was a 31-year-old army major serving as assistant chief of staff of operations for the U.S. division. And he was charged with investigating a letter from one of the soldiers who said, look, this was a massacre. This wasn't a battle. This was a massacre. And Powell refused to follow up on the investigation. That's not how we learned about Millet. He helped conceal it. He wrote, in direct refutation of this portrayal is the fact that relations between the Americal Division soldiers and the Vietnamese people are excellent. That's what he wrote. And he refused to follow up with an investigation. In 2004, a couple months after he spoke at the UN, he appeared on CNN's Larry King show. And he said sort of glibly about the whole incident at Millet, quote, I mean, I was in a unit that was responsible for Millet. I got there after Millet happened. So in war, these sorts of horrible things happen every now and again, but they are still to be deplored. Meaning like, no big deal. But anyway, we shouldn't make too big of a deal out of it. We should criticize it. No, he was part of the cover-up. I mean, for those who are too young to know about Millet, it is what actually changed the entire political consciousness in the United States. It came right after the Tet Offensive when the NLF rose up against the American occupation of South Vietnam. The U.S. troops were angry. They went into this village and other villages too, and they just killed everybody. They were all peasants, poor people, and they slaughtered them. And finally, as a consequence of heroic soldiers and heroic independent media, we learned of this and it became huge news. But Colin Powell there too was part of the problem, not the solution. Anyway, let's go on. You know, we're kind of billing this show, Esther, as U.S. capitalism is a form of organized crime. And when we started to plan the show, we were going to focus mainly on the domestic parts of the story. But then Colin Powell died. And because he's being revered in the media, we had to also turn to the crimes of U.S. capitalism abroad. And there are so many. Vietnam is just one. Iraq, Afghanistan, Dominican Republic, you name it. We could go on and on and on, you know, for the next two hours. But in this segment, I want to focus on when we say U.S. capitalism is a form of organized crime, what we're trying to suggest is that capitalism as a system all over the world is a system based on exploitation and a fundamental injustice. But U.S. capitalism in particular has taken a certain path that is completely criminal in its conduct towards the people in the United States, as well as the people internationally. Poverty and impoverishment in the United States, and they're growing, are not from some inherent poverty. They are not caused by underdevelopment. They are not a legacy of colonial domination by a foreign country that extracted the wealth of this country and took it someplace else. Poverty in the United States, extreme poverty, is not caused by scarcity. The impoverishment of children and of a vast part of the population is in fact a choice. It's a choice of the capitalist class 
And it's a choice of the Democratic Party. It's a choice of the Republican Party. It's a choice of the U.S. Congress. And when we think about it like that, and when we look at some of the big sort of important stories that reveal how this kind of criminal conduct by this U.S. capitalist class happens, it reveals so much. We learn that the U.S. government, and we can see this in all of the instances and stories we're going to talk about, is not a servant to the people. It's not a government of, by, and for the people. That is, in fact, a complete fiction. It is a fundamental lie. But every student in the United States, when they're going to school, are taught that we live in a democracy and that the governing principle is that the government, in spite of whatever flaws it has, is of, by, and for the people. This is part of a patriotic sales campaign. The government is of, by, and for the people, conflated with the government. And the country and the government is conflated with the flag for which it stands. And the national anthem, the star-spangled banner, when it's played, is for something which is for us, for the people. And we must all stand together. We put our hands and our heart together. We pledge fidelity to the flag, the anthem, the country, the government. But behind this mirage, behind this fiction, stands a small class of capitalists who are not united with their country men or country women. In fact, they lay off their country men and women. They ship their jobs overseas where they can make super profits by paying workers in poorer countries a far lower wage. And when the U.S. workers get fed up, get angry, get resentful, the same capitalists using the same capitalist media and their opportunist politicians tell these U.S. workers that some other workers stole their jobs, that Chinese workers or Mexican workers stole their jobs. And this patriotism is not only a lie, it's not only the last refuge of scoundrels, it's a selling point to blunt the class struggle against the real criminals in the United States, the biggest criminals. And those criminals are the capitalists themselves, the rich and the powerful. We could go on and on to talk about how income inequality has been chosen as a policy choice. But Nicole, let's start with a couple other highlighted stories in the news. They should be bigger stories, but they're in the news that demonstrate our point that U.S. capitalism is, in fact, a form of organized crime. One of the first ones I want to start with, I think, is just so clear and people will not be surprised when I tell you that the topic is on education and the exorbitant amount of money and exorbitant and growing amount of money that it takes to get a college education in this country at this point. And of course, getting a college education is something that has long been told to many of us is the only way that you can get a good paying job. It's the only way that you can sort of make ends meet and build a family and, you know, the American dream, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a report out in the Wall Street Journal talking about the Parent Plus program, which if you've had to apply for college in the last couple of decades, pretty much, you might be familiar with. But the Parent Plus program is a loan program that in the 1990s, the cap on what parents could borrow under this program was lifted. So parents started in the 1990s to be able to borrow any amount of money, no matter their income, no matter their job, you know, no matter anything, borrow any amount of money. And you know, now people are now going to their graves owing money for their children's education. 
Right now, parents owe $103.6 billion in Parent PLUS loans. And what happens if the loans aren't repaid doesn't affect the colleges, so the colleges can continue to charge exorbitant amounts of money. The taxpayers are the people who bear the losses if the loans aren't repaid. The colleges are fine. And I just want to make very clear that a lot of the colleges that are taking advantage of this are private colleges, as you might not be surprised to see. What's happened over the last few decades is a lot of small private colleges have decided that they can charge exorbitant amounts of money despite being you know, somewhere in the middle, maybe not the best school on the planet, not, not offering a ton of support, not offering much at all. But yeah, we're going to go ahead. They say, we'll go ahead and charge more and more and more. And then the admissions offices and the financial aid offices tell parents, well, we don't have very many scholarships to give out. We don't have very many loans to give out that are low interest, but you should really apply to this program called Parent Plus. So there's no cap on these. There's no sort of checks or balances on these in terms of like what people are able to afford. And then the average repayment rate among all private four-year colleges with available data, according to this recent analysis by the Wall Street Journal, 39%. So that means many of the remaining parents are paying either not at all or just interest. So their balances are growing and growing and growing or had asked to suspend their payments. Or, you know, this is so many parents across the country, working class people just trying to do what they're supposed to do, right? Which is send your kid to college or in some cases, get your own upper level degree. And they're just drowning under these millions of dollars of debt and in the billions in total. And just for one point of comparison, when you qualify for a federal loan as a student right now, as of this past summer in July, the interest rate was 3.73%. So you borrow many tens of thousands of dollars and you have to pay it back with 3.73% interest, which is a lot of money that's going to get added onto that. These Parent PLUS loans, the interest rate is almost double, 6.28%. 6.28%. That's so much additional money that's going to get added onto that. And so, you know, this is, again, education is something that is good for everyone in society. It is to the betterment of the society as a whole, the more people that are able to get an education, that are able to get the skills that they need, that are better, you know, able to get critical thinking skills, writing skills, speaking skills, all of these things. And yet, Instead of, I don't know, offering this for free or at a very reduced cost to people who can't afford it. Instead of that, this is what's happening, where people are owing huge amounts of money, again, going to their graves with these loans. And this is, I want to emphasize, this is in addition to the loans that students are also taking out. And one more thing I just want to add about this ridiculous story, this ridiculous loan situation. The Wall Street Journal highlighted one university in particular, Baylor University, as essentially being the worst of the offenders where they've, you know, they have over a billion dollar endowment, you know, so they clearly can afford to give people loans, but they don't because they've been giving, as with a lot of private colleges, they've been trying to attract what they call, you know, better recruits or better talent. So they're giving scholarships to people who don't actually need them financially. So that endowment money is going to sports, it's going to building new buildings, and it's going to people who don't actually need the scholarships instead of the people who do need the scholarships. And Baylor's president, and I'm quoting from the article now, said that until a couple of years ago, this is Linda Livingstone, quote, we were admitting students who really couldn't afford Baylor, unquote. The article goes on, the school now takes into account families' ability to pay when offering acceptances, she said. So that was just the kicker to me was... Not only 
are we dealing with these huge, huge, huge amounts of fees just to get an education, which would better society as a whole if we were able to do that for free? But the solution, according to Beeler's president, well, we're just not going to let any low-income people in now. That's the solution. We're just not going to admit people who can't, quote-unquote, afford Baylor. Just such a disgusting story and such a good example, I think, Brian, of what you're talking about. This is a form of extortion. Like, this is extortion against the poor and the working class. This was a really important story about Baylor University. And, of course, Baylor is the tip of the iceberg. And... You know, what they're basically doing is preying on working class and poor families who desperately want their kids to be able to go to a prestigious school like Baylor, and they let them in or did before. Now, as you said, they're not going to let them in at all. That's their solution. But they know their parents are going to take parent plus loans, that the loans are going to probably bankrupt them, and that they can never escape from the loans. So the reason we want to highlight this story is that even Other capitalist countries have education at the higher level where students go for either no fees, no tuition fee, or for reasonable fees, affordable fees. But in the United States, in the United States, these college educations are a form of criminal extortion, as you put it, against the working class that aspires to have their children go to school. Again, these are policy choices. You wouldn't have to have a socialist revolution to get rid of this element of capitalism, but this is the kind of capitalism that U.S. capitalism is. Again, capitalism globally is a system based on the exploitation of the many by the few. It's a system that's inherently unfair, but U.S. capitalism takes it to a whole other level. I mean, and again, we can go through the history of this capitalism to show the odious character and the criminal character of it in so many additional ways, added on ways to the other capitalist countries. Brian, let me give you another example. You know, there's myriad examples about how U.S. capitalists and U.S. capitalism is a form of organized crime against the rest of us, essentially. But we found two in the news this week that we wanted to highlight. I have one more that I wanted to tell you about. So Ford, along with many other car dealerships and car manufacturers, is moving into making more electric vehicles. And so they needed to build a new electric vehicle plant. They went on a search looking for the right area, the right town, the right you know locale to open up their factory. And this article is again in the Wall Street Journal and reads like I'm sure any other mainstream coverage would of this search, but it's just... You know, it echoes actually a lot of other of these searches, but essentially when you read between the lines and you read through the details, I'm going to read directly from the article. Tennessee has stepped out in front in large part because of years long efforts by state leaders and the federal Tennessee Valley Authority, which provides power to the region. The state promoted its extensive workforce training programs, a right to work law and a proposed $500 million in incentives. So Ford has picked Tennessee because the state itself is going to provide worker training instead of the company who you know needs to train the workers, you would think, to do the work. A right-to-work law, which is really a right to work for less, meaning you can't collectively bargain, you can't unionize, you can't you know, negotiate with your worker power, it's individuals only. 
and a proposed $500 million in incentives. A subsidy. Right. I mean, they've just decided we'll just pay you to move here so that, you know, these workers in the Tennessee area can now make, you know, minimum wage jobs or less who can now be trained by the state in a substandard manner, won't be able to unionize, won't be able to collectively bargain and make not enough money to take home. That's the thing, Nicole. I just want to emphasize this because the government, the U.S. government slogan from, and it's what we're taught in school, a government of, by, and for the people. This is obviously a government of, by, and for the capitalist class, for a very small part of the population, the owners, the owners of capital. So they're going to promise them that the workers won't be able to have full union power because it's going to be so-called right to work. They're going to give the capitalists $500 million of the workers' money, that's taxpayers' money, to lure the capitalists to come to Tennessee. And the reason for it, the rationale for it, is it will open some number of jobs for people who live in Tennessee. So if you work for Ford, you will be exploited by Ford, but the option is better than not being exploited because not being exploited in this capitalist system means you might not be working in which case you might not be able to feed your family at all. So against this bargain, you can be exploited by Ford or left on the garbage heap. You know, people will say, yeah, I prefer to work for Ford. Of course, that makes perfect sense. But the government is of, by, and for the capitalists, where in a socialist society, the government would say, and the government, the constitution would say, look, a job or an adequate income is your right because you are a human being. The same with healthcare, the same with housing, the same with all of the things that we basically need. We, the government, are going to serve you. It would be a government of, by, and for the people. But in the U.S. capitalist system, in the way government is formed, the governments are servants of the rich. When Washington wanted to get a baseball team back in the nation's capital, they had to promise the owner, a billionaire who doesn't play baseball, doesn't do anything you know, only owns the team. Maybe he provides the uniforms. I don't know. They offered him hundreds of millions of dollars and built a stadium for free so that he would bring his baseball team to Washington so that we could cheer for it. But again, it's not Washington's team. It's his team. It's of, by, and for the capitalists. And there's so many different examples of this. I mean, think about when just a couple of years ago, Amazon was looking for its new headquarters, the HQ2 search. I mean, if you count up all of the subsidies, all of the free money that the government redistributes from working class people who pay taxes to massive corporations that by and large do not pay taxes, when you add that all up just for Amazon's new headquarters search, it's at least $2.1 billion. But there was an analysis from Good Jobs First, which is a leading research organization. It was actually more like $4.6 billion that they gave to Amazon just to set up a new headquarters. I mean, for instance, that's about 10% of what's needed to cancel the rents and make sure that nobody is evicted from their home because of rent debt in the United States. I mean, these are vast sums of money that we're talking about here. Boeing also, you know, is notorious for extorting the state of Washington for massive, massive, massive tax breaks to keep their corporation headquartered there. This is really how the system works. This is routine. Yeah, indeed. In the auto industry in Michigan, you know, before the factories were shut down in Flint and Flint was destroyed, 
I mean, the workers were making the argument. We, the people, the workers who live in Flint, our government, our city council paid you huge subsidies. We gave you rebates. We gave you incentives and privileges to stay here. And as soon as you decided you could make more money by going somewhere else, you picked up and left. But, you know, you actually belong to us because we paid for it. In other words, that was the argument that workers who were trying to stop plant closings were making. But that's true all over the country. It's a government that actually serves the needs of the capitalist class. And then in the case of Amazon, you know, what you mentioned, Walter, Amazon set up a bidding process. They knew pretty much there was going to be a small handful of cities that were going to really be, you know, in the running to be the second headquarters of Amazon, right? But they set it up so that it was wide open. So scores and scores of cities devoted huge amounts of resources to provide Amazon with all data about their city. What did the city look like? What were the wage scales? What were the transportation? What was the environmental circumstances? So they gave free of charge because they wanted to compete you know, with the dream that maybe Amazon headquarters, second headquarters would open in their city. So all of this free data was provided by government officials, civil servants to Amazon. And then Amazon gets to keep all the data after it decides, you know, which one or two cities it picks. All of this shows that it's of, by, and for the capitalists. Well, you know, The Build Back Better legislation that we've been talking about that stalled in Congress is directly related to these issues that you're talking about in terms of higher education, which would be covered in part by this legislation, you know, two years of free college or, you know, even the energy portion would go to building up this country's ability to build, you know, electric cars and that type of infrastructure to help the environment and the climate catastrophe. And that could be done without these types of payoffs and bribes, really, that, you know, you're talking about. Speaking of bribes and payoffs, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is the subject of this new report, this incredible report by the watchdog group Accountable U.S. And the report documents that Senator Joe Manchin has taken at least $1.5 million from corporations and big business lobbying groups that are attacking and trying to defeat the Build Back Better legislation of his own party, right? And, you know, as we know that this legislation has many aspects to support working families, including childcare and elder care and the free community college that I mentioned, and also all these measures to combat the climate catastrophe. And some of the same groups that are behind these multi-million dollar lying ad campaigns and commercials that we see that are saying, for example, that Medicare being able to negotiate what are now outrageous drug prices will somehow make drugs less available or discourage companies from researching new drugs. Some of these same companies funding this type of misinformation, disinformation to the public are supporting Joe Manchin. The report highlights that corporations tied to the leadership board of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce have given Manchin more than a half million dollars and that the chamber vowed to do everything it can to block Biden's budget and even offered Manchin a reward for resisting the Biden agenda earlier this year. One more example is the Business Roundtable with CEOs from 12 corporations on its board, gave almost a quarter million to Senator Manchin, and they are involved in, quote unquote, 
a significant multifaceted campaign against tax increases on the rich in the plan, similar for an outfit called the Rate Coalition. And I guess we're going to have to start thinking of these groups as like the shadow Congress soon, right? And that Rate Coalition was poised for a seven-figure ad campaign against the Build Back Better budget. Same for the National Association of Manufacturers and, of course, Big Pharma. They've definitely been involved in these ads I'm talking about, and they've spent more than $15 million just on lobbying this year. And, you know, I think that the fact this ties into what you're saying about democracy, you know, the fact that Manchin, along with cinema, is blocking this legislation that would help so many working families and this legislation is overwhelmingly popular, you know, it just highlights, I guess, the fiction or the corruption that we know is there. The fact that these two senators an undemocratic rule called the filibuster can deny the majority these needed benefits while the filibuster was broken to pass Trump's tax cut for the rich. It's just another example of this not being a democracy. You know, it's an oligarchy and the politicians are serving, you know, the oligarchy. And just one other thing, you know, it just dawns on me that they want to call China an authoritarian state. But right now, you know, this year in China, public officials who are proven to be taking money, you know, to impact their decisions, who are taking bribes like this, they are being prosecuted and jailed. One man was even executed this year. And just two examples, two months ago, China Daily reported that Wang Fuyu, former party secretary and chairman of Guizhou Provincial Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, had been expelled from the party and transferred from examination to prosecution for serious legal and disciplinary violations. And the paper reported that Wang received gifts and money and accepted arrangements by private business owners to play golf and take private jets on numerous occasions. And this would just be considered like normal business as usual in Congress. He also sought profits for others in personal arrangement and promotion and failed to confess his problems truthfully and report personal matters as required, the statement said. And it goes on to say that Wang used the power entrusted in him by the party and the people as a tool to make personal gains and to obtain a large amount of money through private lending. And then there's another case. In January, The Guardian reported that a Chinese court had sentenced a former banker and party official to death in a high-profile bribery, embezzlement, and bigamy case that shocked the country. And so Lai Xiaoming, He was previously chairman of one of China's big four state-controlled asset management firms. He pleaded guilty to dozens of charges and taking bribes over 10 years, a period when he was also acting as a regulator. And a review by the Supreme Court said that Lai's significant meritorious service was not enough to earn him a more lenient punishment, given the facts, nature, and circumstances, and the degree of harm to society caused by his bribery crimes. And that just stuck with me, the whole bribery crimes. Because when I think of Manchin, I think of what he's doing as a crime. And it's a crime, it's a harm to society to deprive millions of families here of needed benefits 
to deprive millions of people of ability to go back to work and take care of their children, to take care of their elders, for lots of young people who would like to join a climate corps to fight the climate catastrophe, all the benefits we could have right now to fight this existential threat to not only the United States, but the whole world. And he's just standing in the way of it. And on the other hand, taking money on the side. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, this is absolutely bribery. In, in any other country, this would be corruption. In practically any other country, this would be the criminal charge of corruption. But in the United States, it's how it works. It's perfectly democratic if you're a millionaire or if you own a bank or you sit on a corporate board. But for ordinary working people, this is a dictatorship of money. This is a dictatorship of the rich, and they can buy and pay for these politicians, Joe Manchin, certainly one of the most disgusting ones when it comes to the role that he's playing, well, overall, but especially when it comes to the role that he's paying with the social spending budget. So him, along with Kristen Cinema, are one of the two key people in the Senate who are holding this up. They're refusing to support it. And the Democrats need every vote in the Senate in order to pass this. They do not need any Republican votes. And what Joe Manchin is demanding is completely disgusting. So Joe Manchin is somebody who is very, very, very close with the coal industry, receives lots of money from them. And he is demanding that really the core climate provision in the social spending budget is taken away. And that's $150 billion to finance the creation of essentially a clean energy grid or to improve the United States' energy grid so it relies much more heavily on clean, renewable energy. Now, $150 billion is not at all adequate. That's not nearly enough money. But still, it would represent you know, probably the most significant investment ever that the United States has made towards addressing climate change. And Joe Manchin is demanding that that be taken out in order to appease his coal industry capitalist patrons. And that's even though the people of West Virginia, who he nominally represents in the so-called democracy, are suffering immensely from climate change. There is a recent article that ran in the New York Times about the issue of flooding, just to read a few sentences from that. The new data shows that Mr. Manchin's constituents stand to suffer disproportionately as climate change intensifies. Unlike those in other flood-exposed states, most residents in mountainous West Virginia have little room to relocate from the waterways that increasingly threaten their safety. So, I mean, Joe Manchin's constituents, so-called constituents' homes will be flooded, they'll be drowning, but he'll keep raking in the money and refusing to support even this pretty small down payment towards the transformation of the country's energy grid. Another thing that he's demanding is that the child tax credit payment, which is another centerpiece of the social spending budget, the Build Back Better Act, be severely limited. So the child tax credit is really a monthly check that parents would get, $300 a month for every child they have under the age of six and $250 a month for every child over the age of six. And Manchin is demanding that this be means tested, meaning that there's an income cap and that there are work requirements that you have to submit evidence showing that you are working or looking for work to essentially add all of these bureaucratic layers into the program. And even though, you know, one might look at that and say, okay, well, at least people, you know, who really need it, who make less than $60,000 a year, they'll still be able to get it. But that's probably not what's going to happen because of all the bureaucratic 
procedures that are going to be built into it that people will be forced to jump through to prove that they do in fact qualify for it. We see a prime example of that and how the renter relief funds are being distributed right now. Congress has allocated over $40 billion for relief to go to renters who are behind on their rent facing eviction because of the pandemic. And yet only a tiny fraction of that money, far less than half of that money, has been actually distributed to the people who need it the most because there's such stringent reporting and documentation requirements. And that's what could happen if Joe Manchin gets his way to this crucially important child care, essentially subsidy. So yeah, I mean, an absolutely disgusting human being, one of many in the US Senate, but absolutely Joe Manchin, a complete enemy of working people. It's like you have to have a revolution, which of course is needed, in order to have children or the parents of working class and poor children get what they need just to live. Meanwhile, the same government and Manchin and cinema and the others who say, we're worried, we're concerned about the cause. We, the so-called moderates, are concerned about the cause. None of them have voted against the military budget, which is, you know, $750 billion officially every year. $750 billion, so over 10 years would be $7.5 trillion. But the real number in the so-called military spending is about a trillion. So it's about $10 trillion over the next year or about $8 trillion over the past 10 years. They didn't vote no once on that. The issue of cost never, ever came up. Now, the Trump tax plan was a transference of $2 trillion to the already rich, meaning it was a redistribution of wealth from the lower parts of the income ladder, from those who have the least to those who have the most, a $2 trillion tax giveaway. I'm looking at statistics from Stanford University. This is not a left-wing campus. In the United States, 21% of all children are in official poverty, which means the number of kids who are really poor is not 21% because that's a ridiculously low threshold. It's really about 50% or maybe 45%. So, you know, one out of every two kids might be living in poverty or near poverty. The United States, according to Stanford, out of a survey of 40 countries about childhood poverty, the U.S. is 36th, number 36, 36th in this, the richest country in the world where the U.S. just gave $2 trillion to the already very, very rich in these tax breaks. And Manchin and the others who are trying to stop a program that if it became law would diminish childhood poverty overnight almost by 50%. And that's what they don't have money for. In the past 50 years, past five decades, the top 1% of U.S. quote earners, meaning high income families, have doubled their share of the national income. They have doubled their share. And according to official statistics, 140 million people in the United States are either in poverty or characterized as low income. That's a kind of capitalism that must be described as a form of organized crime. Wall Street Journal just had a story that came out last week. More than 130 federal judges broke U.S. law and judicial ethics by overseeing court cases involving companies in which they or their family owned stock. 
The Wall Street Journal investigation found that judges, quote, improperly, meaning illegally, failed to disqualify themselves in 685 different court cases around the country since 2010. And now, guess what, everybody? The judges are sending letters back to the litigants saying, you know what? We should have recused ourselves. We shouldn't have overseen the lawsuit where we had a direct financial stake. But of course, if anybody else breaks the law, meaning if working class or poor people did it, you don't get a chance to send a letter saying, gee, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry I stole from you. No, you go to trial. And in all likelihood, you don't even have a trial because you plead guilty to the heavy charges you're facing and you go to jail. And that's why there's 2.4 million people in this country in prison. But if you know all of the 130 federal judges violate the law, it's like, eh, no big deal. Anyway, U.S. capitalism, a form of organized crime. Let's keep going about the criminal conduct of the capitalist class, you know, violating workers' rights, violating our communities, violating a sense of ethics or justice, and again, threatening to destroy the human race because of this sort of untethered demand for more and more and more from fossil fuels, which we know are creating a climate catastrophe. We do know that. And indigenous activists and communities and non-indigenous activists and communities came out last week for five days of demonstrations in a row, Monday through Friday, in a week-long set of actions called the People versus Fossil Fuels Mobilization. Over the course of the week, over 600 demonstrators were arrested. This included, you know, insisting and demanding, we did not vote for fossil fuels, Biden, we need real solutions, no BS. Lots of people really out there saying, we don't need fossil fuels. We don't need these pipelines going through our communities, dirtying our water, giving our kids and our families cancer and other illnesses. But we do need the government to actually do what they say they were going to do. Biden said he was going to stop the pipelines, and that has not happened yet. So people were out in the hundreds, you know, huge groups of people last week. And yet there hasn't been much coverage about this. I mean, not only were there more than 600 arrests last week, but there were these really compelling, dramatic, like horrendous images of indigenous leaders and elders sitting peacefully in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, demanding that they actually be seen and heard and listened to that instead of being seen or heard or listened to or talked with, were tased by officers, were arrested, were forced out of the building. Again, these are indigenous leaders and elders who have traveled from around the country to D.C. and who, you know, have given up everything for a week, paid, you know, lots of money to get here and to feed themselves and to feed all these people who are coming to do this protest. And none of this made mainstream coverage. None of it. You know, critics even... There were some, you know, right-wingers who said this was another January 6th. Well, the people, you know, who walked away from January 6th, they walked away without any arrest. The fascists who attacked people in the Capitol, A, were attacking with violence, were breaking windows, were shoving their way through. These were indigenous elders sitting down and saying, we want to be heard. It's an incredibly different thing. And again, almost no coverage. I mean, you had to go to alternative sites to see anything about what happened last week. Nicole, I mean, I hadn't heard those comparisons to January 6th. This is making me think that any demonstrations for social justice in D.C. 
that are sizable and militant and just demanding justice are going to be compared to January 6th when they're nothing of the sort. Exactly. And, you know, when you really think about it, there were so many people out there, so many people, hundreds and so many, you know, who had traveled so far to demonstrate, to say their piece, to try to get attention to these issues that their communities are facing, these, you know, health crises that their community members are dealing with because of pipelines, because of fracking, and because of climate change broadly really causing destruction and chaos in working class communities around the country. One thing that, Brian, that you said in our editorial meeting that I thought was so important, if these protests had been staged in Hong Kong instead of D.C., the mainstream U.S. media, I'm sure, would have actually covered these, right? I mean, they were the mainstream media was covering Hong Kong daily when it serves the mainstream media's purpose and the State Department's purpose. They're willing to cover anything for any amount of time. But, you know, when it's indigenous leaders who are coming out here and saying, we only have one planet. If we don't do anything about this, we are all going to die very soon. There's nothing. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, this really shows the power of the corporate media, the mainstream corporate media to make a movement, you know, a thing in society or not. I mean, this has all the elements of what would be, you know, a very, very compelling report in the media, something that people want to know about, right? I mean, it's, you know, people who have been subjected to truly brutal cruelty by very powerful interests, people who are determined, showing great courage to resist that, people who are facing violence, right? I mean, this was a dramatic confrontation that's been going on with these oil corporations that are using, you know, the local police as essentially, you know, like hired private militia almost. And then there's, of course, you know, the historical background that this is a struggle led by Native Americans in a society that was founded on the genocide of Native Americans. I mean, this is something that if it was put on the news would attract huge attention, right? I mean, people want to know about something like this that's happening. And yet, for political reasons, not for viewership, but for political reasons, this is considered to be sort of out of bounds. It's not something that you could seriously consider giving that type of coverage to. But you would give that type of coverage to a few hundred people in Cuba, for instance, this summer, who were demonstrating against you know a longtime target of the U.S. government. Those demonstrations were not nearly as dramatic. They were quite small compared to the size of Cuba's population. And yet you would think that this was like a huge historic undertaking that was going on inside of Cuba because of the amount of coverage, wall-to-wall, nonstop coverage that it got. So, and also after those protests, you know, Joe Biden was one of the people calling Cuba a failed state because of the conditions brought about by the U.S. embargo there. But when you really think about the failure of the U.S. to address these very sane demands of indigenous leaders to protect the air we breathe, the water we drink, the land that we have to live on, and we want to live on unpolluted land, you know, I think that is the marker of a failed state. All right, let's go on to another story. As we have discussed in this show, after a suicide bomber blew themselves up at the Kabul airport, probably an ISIS attack, ISIS claimed credit for it, ISIS-K, that attack killed many, many Afghans, but it also killed 13 U.S. Marines. And that's when all of the U.S. media started condemning Biden for leaving Afghanistan, as if leaving Afghanistan was going to be some seamless effort after 20 years of war. 
And, you know, no big outcry like that against Trump or Biden or before him, Obama or Bush for the killing of Afghans. And we know that officially it's about 240,000 Afghans have died in the last 20 years. But afterwards, after the attack on the Kabul airport, the U.S. carried out a drone strike against what they said was another ISIS suicide bomber, except it wasn't. It was a family. It was a man who was coming back from grocery shopping. He was greeted in the driveway by his kids who were excited to see him. A drone strike massacred the entire family, 10 civilians killed. And because the media attention was focused on Kabul after the airport attack, it wasn't really possible for the Pentagon to sweep under the rug like it does for all of its other criminal activities in Afghanistan, this crime, which was the destruction of a family. So as the truth came out that they were just civilians, that it was a, quote, horrible mistake, the news story is that U.S. to offer, quote, condolence payments to relatives of 10 civilians killed in drone. The Pentagon statement follows a call for President Joe Biden to, quote, show real concern for civilians by taking more meaningful steps to prevent civilian casualties as a result of all U.S. lethal operations, close quote. The Pentagon said last week that the U.S. would issue condolence payments to relatives of 10 Afghan civilians, including seven children killed in the attack. Now, I wanted to look up, well, what does the Pentagon actually pay families when they destroy and murder their loved ones? I looked at an article from The Intercept a few years ago. Here's how it opens. This is from 2015. An armored vehicle ran over a six-year-old boy's legs, $11,000. A jingle truck was, quote, blown up by mistake, $15,000. A controlled detonation broke eight windows in a mosque, $106. A boy drowned in an anti-tank ditch, $1,916. A 10-ton truck ran over a cucumber crop, $180. A helicopter, quote, shot bullets hitting and killing seven cows, $2,200. Destruction of 200 grapevines, blah, blah, blah. A child who died in a combat operation, $2,414. These are the condolence compensation payments paid to families. When we think about when the Pentagon actually takes responsibility, which is rare, which is rare. But, you know, the whole system here, we're talking about U.S. capitalism as a criminal operation, as a form of organized crime at home and abroad. The mix of this kind of authority, hubris, power, military might, supremacy, absence of accountability, absence of accountability such that it grants impunity to the criminals who commit these crimes. And it's also mixed with this real toxic nonstop racism that has penetrated and permeated U.S. decision-making calculations. I can remember so vividly as a teenager when I was starting to organize against the Vietnam War. And of course, the Pentagon was trying to explain what caused the tenacity of the Vietnamese to fight and fight and fight such that they weren't going to be defeated. Everybody knew the Vietnamese weren't going to lose. The U.S. soldiers wanted to go home. The Marines wanted to go home after their tour, but the Vietnamese were home. And so General William Westmoreland actually said in explaining to the American people 
why the Vietnamese were so tenacious. He said, quote, the Oriental doesn't put the same high price on life as does the Westerner. Life is cheap in the Orient. That's the head of U.S. commanding forces in Vietnam explaining to the American people who are conceived for themselves that the Vietnamese are tenacious and as a consequence aren't going to be defeated. He says, the Oriental doesn't put the same high price on life as does the Westerner. Now, this wasn't from 1687 when he said it. This was 1967. This is the racism that permeates and creates this toxic mix, which allows the U.S. ruling class to justify so many of its crimes. Speaking of racism, Esther, let's talk about the other dominant aspect of the U.S. corporate capitalist criminal system, which, of course, is police violence, again, permeated with racism. Right. I actually think it's important to include you know, the latest developments in police terror under this subject today about the crimes of capitalism, you know, because all these horrible stories in the news about police terror are warning us to be a watchdog on these 18,000 police departments in the country, all with their own rules, you know, acting as the arm wing of the state, really. So on Monday, jury selection began for the murder trial of three men, father and son, Greg and Travis McMichael and their neighbor, William Bryan, in the death of Almont Aubrey, who was shot to death while jogging last February near the port city of Brunswick, Georgia. And remember that Jackie Johnson, a former prosecutor there, was indicted last month over a handling of this very case. And Johnson is accused of violating her oath of office and obstructing police by showing favor and affection to Greg McMichael, a former cop who previously worked with her as an investigator. So one of the news reports mentioning the jury selection also mentioned that Brunswick is a port city. And that piqued my interest because I saw that it is in southern Georgia, less than two hours by car from Valdosta, Georgia, which is just above the Florida panhandle. And Valdosta is the site of one of the most horrific lynchings in history of Mary Turner in 1918. And Turner was eight months pregnant when she was lynched for speaking out against the lynching of her husband. As the Equal Justice Initiative writes of her lynching, a white mob bound her feet, hanged her from a tree with her head facing down, threw gasoline on her and burned the clothes off her body. Mrs. Turner was still alive when the mob took a large butcher's knife to her abdomen, cutting the unborn baby from her body. When the baby fell from Mary Turner, a member of the mob crushed the crying baby's head with his foot. The mob then riddled Mrs. Turner's body with hundreds of bullets, killing her. That was in 1918 in Valdosta, Georgia. Like I said, less than two hours away from Brunswick, Georgia. And I should mention that a new documentary, Finding Kendrick Johnson, reminds us of that horrific mob murder as it investigates an apparent murder a century later in Valdosta of 17-year-old Kendrick Johnson, whose body was found rolled up in a gym mat in his Valdosta High School in 2012. And despite much evidence to the contrary, including the fact that the persons of interest were sons of an FBI agent, Kendrick's death was ruled an accident, and the family is now calling for that case to be reopened. So staying in the South, we also discuss the 2019 torture and just beating death of Ronald Green by Louisiana State Police 
which was caught on video, but was only leaked this year, two years later, more than two years later. Well, now Carl Cavalier has been fired as a Louisiana state trooper for being a whistleblower in that case, while the cops that actually tortured and beat Ronald Green to death are still on the job. And as we've mentioned, federal prosecutors are investigating whether the heads of the Louisiana State Police obstructed justice to protect the troopers seen on that video, punching, dragging, tasing Ronald Green in 2019. Now, this is an interview that Cavalier did earlier this year with a local CBS affiliate in New Orleans. But the initial state police response was to blast the leak as unauthorized amid ongoing federal and state investigations. Cavalier saw something very different. Are killers and there are people who are okay with the killers being on the job, and that's the people who are um, a part of the cover-up. Days after the story broke, the state police reversed their position and released additional video. But to Cavalier, that only raised more questions about why it took 474 days before the agency began an investigation. Yeah, so I consider it a murder because why else would we, would we uh, hesitate to be transparent about it? You know, why else would we not do our jobs and hold these guys accountable? Why, why else? What other reason? Since then, internal and federal scrutiny has expanded to include other allegations of excessive force, both in Troop F and elsewhere in the state. Some of the troopers involved in Green's death have been fired and criminally charged in other cases. That was Carl Cavalier, former Louisiana state trooper, recently fired, speaking to the CBS affiliate in New Orleans. And there's so many cases, there's so much. ProPublica recently reported three stories. The ACLU of Louisiana is calling on federal prosecutors to launch an investigation into the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office following a report by ProPublica that revealed stark racial disparities in shootings by deputies and systemic transparency problems. The investigation highlights the story of Sojourner Gibbs, who, after going into a diabetic shock in her car, county sheriffs first arrived on the scene, referred to her as a bitch, dragged her from the car, slammed her face down into the dirt, and handcuffed her behind her back with zip ties. And ProPublica also broke the story about how deputies in California's Antelope Valley are disproportionately citing black teens often for minor infractions like getting into fights or smoking. And then the final story, which has gotten the most attention, is about how a juvenile judge in Tennessee is locking up young black children for crimes that don't even exist, such as for witnessing a crime. And all those stories, again, are at ProPublica. And then finally, what I guess some people call to the North as up South in the United States, from Yahoo News last week, Gage Grosskrutz, shot by U.S. teenager Kyle Rittenhouse during racial justice protests in Wisconsin last year, has filed a lawsuit against local law enforcement he accuses of deputizing a roving militia of white nationalists. Remember that Grosskrutz was one of three people shot by Rittenhouse. The two others, Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum, died. And Rittenhouse actually faces trial on homicide and attempted homicide charges next month in the August 2020 shooting in Kenosha. The lawsuit says, quote, it was not a mistake that Kyle Rittenhouse would kill two people and maim a third that evening. 
It was a natural consequence of the actions of the Kenosha Police Department and Kenosha Sheriff's Office in deputizing a roving militia to, quote unquote, protect property and assist in maintaining order. So Grosskreutz's lawsuit names Kenosha County, city, along with the police and sheriff's department and individual officers. And also in August, Huber's family, one of the young men killed, his family also filed a lawsuit with similar charges saying that local law enforcement officers and white nationalist militia persons discussed and coordinated strategy that night. Walter, we are and have covered a number of really gruesome stories, and this is part of the struggle inside the United States, the struggle for justice, which means the struggle against the capitalist ruling class and all of its manifestations. Kyle Rittenhouse was deputized, in essence, by the cops. They were, you know, fist bumping, and, you know, he shot dead two people, shot another And right now, as he's awaiting trial, you know, he's treated as a hero by the right wing. The right wing in the United States, which was told starting especially with the election of Trump, but even earlier with the Tea Party movement, that it's cool to be racist, that the taboo period of being openly racist, that period that, you know, started with the victories of the civil rights movement, where the ruling class tried to tamp down racism in America in order to have social peace, that period has ended and the the racists are on the move. The racists are trying to build and mobilize and they're trying to, you know, reach different sections of the population, including the population of white people, white workers, white poor people, white middle-class people, and bring them into a racist movement. And at the same time, in a countervailing way, There is the beginning of the resurgence of the labor movement, the multinational working class that can fight shoulder to shoulder. You know, white, black, Latino, Asian American, indigenous people, Arab American workers, regardless of race or ethnicity, standing together and fighting against the real enemy in society, which is the capitalist class. Let's talk a little bit about the strike wave and some of the different dynamics that are going on inside this now newly revitalizing, not all at once, step by step, but revitalizing U.S. labor movement that had been in retreat for decades. And again, it's a complicated story, but it in many ways is the most important element of what's been missing in the political struggle in the United States is a robust workers' movement they can fight not only for wages and benefits, but on all the social issues as well. That's right. Well, there's cause for optimism on that front. Of course, it's a very difficult battle and the deck is stacked against workers, you know, in the economy generally and because of the particular legal regime in the United States governing trade unions. But that has not stopped people from fighting. And we've seen some very encouraging signs lately. There is major strikes at Nabisco, at Kellogg currently going on, John Deere, there was the biggest strike authorization vote, which was the IATSE union, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. They voted on October 4th, and they have about 60,000 members. This is essentially the union for Hollywood workers. They voted on October 4th 
almost unanimously, almost unanimously, 98% to authorize a strike, which was the first time that such an authorization vote was taken in the union's 128-year history. And by the way, that's 98% supporting a strike with 90% turnout, extremely, extremely high turnout. Now, there was an agreement that was reached between the leadership of IATSE and the trade group representing the big Hollywood studios. The details of that are still emerging. And that agreement last weekend averted what appeared to be a certain strike, right? Exactly, which would have started on Monday. So details of that agreement are still emerging. It appears, and this is from media reports, but it appears that there's a significant section of the union's membership that do not accept the terms of the deal and want to go ahead with it. Now, because of the nature of the sort of legal side of contract negotiations, now that this initial proposal has been accepted by the leadership, although not ratified by the workers, there will be a period of perhaps several weeks where this is put into legal language before a final vote is taken by the membership about whether or not to accept it. But some people are saying right now that they are not going to vote to accept it. And there's extensive media coverage of this. They're angry at their leadership. Yeah, that's right. And most of it revolves around the concept of, well, what we were talking about with Richard Wolff last week, work-life balance, that the standards, what workers are expected to do by the Hollywood bosses is just completely inhumane. I mean, this is, you know, an industry where 12, 14-hour shifts are common, 16-hour shifts happen. There's very little downtime. You know, you could work a 14-hour shift, go home for a few hours, and then have to come back and work another 14-hour shift. Schedules are unpredictable. I just want to read a little bit from an article that we published in Liberation News. This is a quote that a Liberation News writer got from Amelia Brook, who is a member of IATSE Local 800. She said, we exhaust ourselves for 12, 14, 16, even more hours a day, and it leaves no time for us to focus on other things that matter in our community, within our families. If we've got hobbies or other interests, we're not allowed to pursue them, and it's time that we're allowed to be fuller people outside of making entertainment for others. I think that that sentiment that they expressed there is really something that's widespread across the entire industry and something that people are absolutely willing to strike for. So we'll have to see how this plays out. The membership may vote to reject this contract. And in a few weeks, we could be talking about another strike. Yeah, Walter, I think if we remember that the teacher strikes that started in West Virginia and then spread around the country, at first, the union leadership had agreed to a deal, and it was the rank and file who said, no, we're not going to accept that deal, and we're going to fight. And they were the ones, it was the rank and file activists who were building unity, by the way, building political and multiracial, multiethnic unity on the ground who rejected it. And then the strike started, and then the leadership was going to you know, accept less, and they said, no, we don't have to accept less. You know, sometimes you have to accept less if you're not strong enough, if you're divided, if the workforce is divided, if the people are uncertain, if some people are crossing the picket line, then you might have to accept less. But if you're strong, you don't want to accept less than you can get by fighting. And then it's just a matter of tenacity and audacity and boldness and, you know, confidence in the struggle. So this is going to be very interesting, like the labor movement's resurgence, should it start to resurge, and we think it is, 
it will have all kinds of contradictions. So you have to pay very, very careful attention. I also want to say, Walter, I was sick last week. And so I wasn't able to do the interview with Richard Wolf, which you did. You offered to stand in for me and do it with Richard about the U.S. labor movement and strikes. I would highly recommend to anyone who has not heard your interview with Richard Wolf to do that because it's a great conversation, it's a great discussion, and it really, really is useful for people who are new to labor to understand some of the core dynamics and ways to understand and explain what's going on with the labor movement. Anyway, Walter, we're going to go to you finally again for the, you know, the big stories on Liberation News, liberationnews.org. It's a socialist news and analysis site. You're the editor. What are your big stories? Yeah, Brian. So as always, I want to encourage people to go to liberationnews.org, sign up at the top for our newsletter. One article that's, I think, very unique, very informative, it's titled, Eyewitness Report, Cuba Scientists, Medical Workers Advance Fight Versus COVID. This is written by Gloria Lariva, who went to Cuba to see firsthand how the country was combating the COVID-19 pandemic and using their socialist system as opposed to the criminal capitalist system that places profits over people's lives. Cuba is doing very, very well despite being a blockaded country. They've developed three of their own vaccines. And by November 15th, 92% of the whole population will be fully vaccinated. So check out this article, Eyewitness Report, Cuba Scientists, Medical Workers Advanced Fight versus COVID to find out how they did that. Another article I want to highly recommend, 34 years after Sankara's assassination, killers finally stand trial. So Thomas Sankara, world-renowned revolutionary leader, was the president of Burkina Faso in the 1980s. He was overthrown in a coup, and the man who led that coup was, a few years ago, overthrown in a popular revolution himself. And now some of the killers of Thomas Sankara are standing trial, and that includes that overthrown president, even though he's not in the courtroom, he's in exile. So very important point, I think, both in terms of contemporary politics and history there. 34 years after Sankara's assassination, killers finally stand trial. And finally... I want to highlight another labor-related story. It's titled On Strike, Unsafe Staffing, Low Wages Bring Mercy Hospital Workers to Breaking Point. And this is about a strike at Buffalo's Mercy Hospital run by Catholic Health. That's going on. It's been taking place for almost three weeks now. And the workers are standing strong, even though this is, of course, very difficult for them to be on strike on the picket line. But there's a lot of solidarity that they're getting from the rest of the labor movement, from the community. You can learn more on liberationnews.org and check back every day for new news. Okay, we're going to leave it there. We'll be back tomorrow with Richard Wolf. It's our weekly segment on the biggest stories in the economy. We're going to also be back Thursday in our regular segment called The Real Story. As we said in the beginning, we are bringing you unique, independent, socialist programming in this episode, news and analysis and historical perspective. On Wednesdays, we interview Richard Wolff. He's an amazing popularizer of socialism and Marxism, especially in the realm of economics. Thursdays, we do a deep dive, especially focused perspective on many, many different kinds of issues. But we can't do it without the support of people who like the show or rely on the show. If you're not a patron yet, please consider becoming a patron. Go to Patreon 
facebook.com forward slash the socialist program become a subscriber do your part and help us continue to bring independent socialist programming high quality programming to the public You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.